Just so you guys know, the reason we gather here like this is because Jesus said, I came so that you could have eternal life. And as I said earlier, the hope for all of us today is that when we hear the truth, when we hear as we're getting ready to, pre to present to you some stuff that's from God, Jesus says, when you hear that and you actually hold on to it, you put your faith in it, then you step out and you actually act. What happens is you actually link your spirit with God every time you do that. And, then, and that's what life is. Eternal life is when you know him. And so there's a life that can be lived on this planet in intimacy with God. And that is great news, man. It is great news. So there is love and joy and peace. There is strength and patience. There is everything that you need. I don't know what you came in here with today. But I know this, God can meet you exactly where you are. And we have a hope of eternal life. If we'll hear today, put our faith in it, step it out, because it leads us to a godly life. We actually get to be like him. It's awesome. It's good news. And I want to tell you, I'm, I'm really excited today, because earlier this fall, I, I went to a TED, how many of you guys know TED Talks? How many of you have heard of TED Talks? Okay, almost all of you. Fantastic, wonderful organization, unbelievable things you can learn on there. Well, they did a TEDx, which is a local TED Talk, right here in uh, Salt Lake City this fall. And, uh, and one of our own people, David York, uh, spoke at it. So I went, and David is the chairman of our business operations board here at K2. He and his wife, Mindy, and their family have been a part of our community for a long time. And as soon as David was done talking, I was like, that will be shared at K2 someday. And today is the perfect day um, to hear the message that the, I really believe that God laid on David's heart, all right? So would you guys welcome him to the stage, Mr. David York? We look forward to hearing from him this morning. Thanks, man. Love you, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, good morning. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to share with you guys this morning. The merchant of death is dead. This headline from a French newspaper in 1888 announced to the world the death of Alfred Nobel. The article went on to detail Alfred's life and declared that he had amassed his wealth, quote, by finding ways to kill people faster than ever before. You see, some 20 years earlier, Alfred's younger brother, Emile, had been killed in a nitroglycerin plant accident. As a result, Alfred devoted his life to create a safer, more stable form of this highly unstable liquid. And he was ultimately successful, naming his invention dynamite, from the Greek word dynamos, meaning power. Dynamite was used to mine tunnels and build natural resources. There we go. But it was also used to build more powerful bombs, landmines, and weaponry. Now, there was just one problem with this article. It wasn't actually Alfred who had died, but his older brother, Ludwig. As a result, Alfred became one of the few people in human history to have the privilege or curse of reading their own obituary and seeing the world's reaction to their death. This reaction led Alfred to a crisis of conscience how would he be remembered for this lasting power he brought into the world? In an effort to reshape that legacy, upon his actual death, 
Alfred left the bulk of his net worth to create and establish the Nobel Prizes, annual awards in the fields of chemistry, physics, medicine, and peace. So with Alfred as a backdrop, I'd like to start today by asking you two questions. What is your net worth, and what do you plan on leaving as an inheritance? Now, if you're like most people, you think of these terms in a purely financial context. I can tell you, as an estate planning attorney, that's exactly how I was trained to think of these terms. In fact, when I started, I did so based on two fundamental assumptions. The first is that a person's net worth can be found on their balance sheet. And the second is that if transferring some wealth is good, then transferring more wealth must be better. It wasn't too long, however, after I started practicing that I ran into experiences that ran counter to these basic assumptions. Notwithstanding what I thought were some of the finest 84-page trusts written in third person with more whereases that you can possibly imagine, I felt like the documents that I was preparing lacked something. They had a good skeletal system, but they had no heart and they had no soul. Imagine me as an attorney having to deal with something that had no heart or soul. That was a joke. <laughs> the second is that I found clients increasingly concerned about the potential destructive effects of inherited wealth, and it wasn't too long before I saw why. I saw families destroyed. I saw addictions fed. I saw heirs stripped of purpose. It culminated the day when I sat in a courtroom watching teams of lawyers fighting over a mother's estate with siblings who were unable to even look at each other. And I thought, this is wealth? This is inheritance? These experiences and others led me on a quest of sorts to try to figure out what, what wealth really is and what inheritance ought to be. And I came to find that my fundamental assumptions were fundamentally wrong. The reality is that a person's wealth cannot simply be found on a balance sheet. And the second is, just because transferring some wealth is good, it does not mean that transferring more is better. So let's look at each of these assumptions. The reality is that for the vast majority of human existence, life had a much more holistic definition. Wealth was seen in the sum of our experiences, our skills and abilities, our collective narrative wisdom. This focus on transferring our human capital can be seen going back more than 5,000 years. The Talmud taught that a parent's primary responsibility to the next generation is to teach their children God's word, to give them a skill or ability, and even how to swim. In other words, it taught that the primary responsibility one generation has to the next is to teach them who they are and how to live and how to thrive in this world. So how do we do this? First, before you make a list of your assets, make a list of your core values. What drives you? What motivates you? Alfred Nobel's core values included achievement, excellence, and peace. And his establishment of the Nobel Prizes created a stage for the likes of Martin Luther King, Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, and most recently, Malala Yousafzai. Second, before you write your will, Write your life story. Detail your successes. Capture your failures. Pass on all those things you wish you had known and transfer those like you would your most treasured, tangible possessions. Now, the second assumption is that if transferring some wealth is good, then more must be better. 
This is quintessential Western culture. What's better than a dollar? Two dollars. What's better than two dollars? Five dollars. The reality is, though, that just because some is good, it doesn't necessarily mean that more is better. This is also not a new concept. More than 3,000 years ago, Solomon said it this way. He said, give me neither riches nor poverty, but only my daily bread. You see, he saw having too much as being just as bad as having nothing at all. So what does it look like when we focus just on the financial resources? Cornelius Vanderbilt was the wealthiest man in America when he died in 1877. To give you an idea of the amount of his wealth, this stick of dynamite represents the average American inheritance today. Not an insignificant sum. So how much did he leave? Not this amount, but this amount. More than $185 billion in today's dollars. And yet within just 30 years, not one member of his family was among the wealthiest in America. And within 100 years, at a family reunion attended by 120 Vanderbilt descendants, there was not one millionaire in the group. See, they had so much they could not only do anything, they could do nothing. And they did a lot of nothing. They were reality TV before it was cool. Keeping up with the Vanderbilts. So what does it look like when we focus on the transfer of our human capital? Two quick stories. Ruth and Elias were the hardworking parents of five children. Their fourth child, the son, was quite artistic. So in addition to teaching their son about construction and hard work, uh, Elias enrolled his son in an art class at the Chicago Art Institute. Through the encouragement and small loan of his older brother, Roy, their son was able to fulfill his dream of starting his own business. Their son's name was Walt Disney. Paul and Clara were blue-collar workers living in San Francisco. Paul taught his adopted son not only about mechanics and electronics, but about the importance of design, even down to the parts that couldn't be seen. When their son wanted to start his business, they loaned out their garage and several rooms in their house to create an assembly plant. Their son's name was Steve Jobs. Two very different people, but each had something in common. Each was given rich amounts of human capital and limited amounts of financial resources, and they were able to multiply that many-fold. So why is this important? The Center for Wealth and Philanthropy at Boston College projected over the course of the next 40 years, the baby boomer generation will ultimately transfer more than $40 trillion to the next generation. This will represent the largest financial wealth transfer in the history of the world. So what if, instead of simply transferring visionless dynamite, we first captured our human capital in all its forms, and then we strategically used our financial resources. What could we do? If we did that, how much of that otherwise wasted part of the inverted U-curve could we redeploy into education, to caring for the poor? What terrible things in the world could we work to eradicate? What beautiful things in the world could we work to multiply? I want to end by asking you two questions. First, what is your net worth? And second, what do you plan on leaving as an inheritance. 
Now, the reality is that there's actually three levels of wealth. The first is that surface level, and it's where we spend most of our lives. It's what's in our pockets, or not in our pockets. It's what's in our bank accounts and our retirement plans. It's what's the value of our house or our business. So what's wrong with just staying at this level of wealth? The reality is that anything that we tangibly possess, we can lose. And the more that we possess, the more that can be lost. Jesus says that if we focus just on this level of wealth, it actually brings worry and it chokes out the word of God. Solomon calls it chasing after the wind. Although the Bible does talk a lot about this level of wealth, it really only says four basic things. It praises working hard for it and giving it away. And it warns against hoarding it and trusting in it. Now there's a second, deeper level of wealth. You may be thinking, I'm no Walt Disney. I am no Steve Jobs. But that doesn't mean you aren't Roy Disney or Paul Jobs. The reality is whether it's knowing what to do in life or simply knowing what not to do, each of you is rich. And you have the ability to richly transfer that, not just to children and grandchildren, but to nieces and nephews and friends and neighbors. And it's not just our wisdom. It's also our words. When I was in eighth grade, and this may come as a shock to some of you who know me, I was not actually a very good student. The one thing I did have, however, was a head for math and especially statistics. My eighth grade math teacher was named Mrs. Robertson, but we all called her Sarge. She was tough and she was demanding. One day in the middle of class, while we were all quietly working, a note came summoning me to the principal's office. Now, from prior experience, I knew exactly how to get to the principal's office. Although for once in my life, I had no idea why. When I got there, I was given an envelope, and in that envelope was a typed letter from Mrs. Robertson. She praised my hard work, she told me to keep it up, and she told me that she was proud of me. She, I will never forget walking back into the classroom while everyone else's heads were down, busily studying. She looked up at me, she winked, and she smiled. That day, she may have thought that she was giving a bit of encouragement to a geeky teenage boy. What she gave that day was life. And those were words that continue to buoy this geeky man more than 30 years later. The Bible says that when God brought life into the universe, he used his words. It says that when Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly, he was referred to as the word. If we carry even a shadow of the image of God, it is no wonder why the Bible says that our words can bring life. At this level, you are all rich, and you have the ability to give and to bless richly. Now, even below this level, there is a core question of wealth, and it's represented by this painting. In 1992, 
Terry Horton, a 70-year-old long-haul trucker, walked into Dot's Spot Thrift Store looking for a gift for a friend, and she found a painting that looked a lot like this. After negotiating the price from $8 down to $5, she bought it and drove it to her friend. Her friend rejected the painting, saying it was too ugly and it wouldn't even fit in the door of her mobile home. Now, a few days later, Terry was uh, showing this painting to a friend of hers who was an art teacher at a local community college. And he commented that it looked a lot like a Jackson Pollock, who was one of the most famous artists of the 20th century. This set Terry on a quest of sorts, and so she took the painting to numerous different art experts. They all universally agreed. If this was, in fact, a Pollock, it was a lost treasure worth as much as $50 million. If it wasn't, however, it was a worthless piece of canvas. Because Terry couldn't prove where it had come from, it was rejected by the art community as a fraud. Now, undaunted, Terry hired Peter Biro, who was a forensic expert in the field of art. Peter examined every square inch of the painting, and on the back, in the corner, he found a fingerprint. Uh, Peter then went to some known Pollock works, and on one of those, he found another fingerprint. And when he compared the two, they matched. As a result, an anonymous donor came forth and offered Terry $2 million for her painting. She rejected it. She said, why would I sell my $50 million painting for only $2 million? Now, the art community was still unconvinced. And so Peter went to Pollock's studio, and in the corner, on a blue paint can, he found yet another fingerprint. This time, all three fingerprints matched. Another buyer came forth, this time offering Terry $9 million for her painting. Again, she rejected it. Why would she sell her $50 million painting for only $9 million? This painting represents what I believe to be the two core questions of our life. Who made us and what are we worth? The critics of the world want to tell us that we are a random mess of lines and paint droppings and that we are not worth anything more than to sit in the back of a thrift store. God tells us we are his workmanship and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if that is true, then you realize this, the value of any painting is not in the canvas and the paint. It's in the artist. And if that's true, then the point of life isn't about cleaning ourselves up or making us look more presentable to the world. It's about recognizing who we are and what that makes us worth. If you search the immensity of the stars, the beauty of nature, the complexity of DNA, you will find God's fingerprint. And if you search your heart and your soul and your hopes and your dreams, you will find God's matching fingerprint. And if God made you, if he is the artist, then that makes you priceless. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It could just as easily say, For God so loved his masterpieces that he paid his one and only son. The IRS, yes, I just invoked the name of the IRS. They say that the value of something is what a willing buyer and a willing seller would exchange knowing all the facts. I think they couldn't be more right. God is the willing buyer. He knows all the facts, and he's already made the payment. The, um, the critics of the world want to set a price on us, and when we accept that price, whether it's $5 or $5 million, we sell ourselves short. When we look in the mirror, when we look at others and we say to ourselves, I see a mess. I believe that God says, I see my masterpiece and it's got my fingerprints all over it. And if we are priceless, and if I am priceless, then you are priceless and you are priceless. The man on the corner, uncertain of where his next meal comes from, is priceless. The woman with her eight children alone and scared and fearful in Hildale, Utah, is priceless. The orphan in Swazi is a priceless work of art. I believe that God tells us to use our wealth, our wisdom, and our words to care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Because God says, those are my works of art, and they are meant to be cared for and treasured and held priceless. And I want to close by, saying, by asking you about your inheritance. Obviously, I can't answer that question for you, but I will say this. I do believe that each of us is resourced in each of these areas to bring love and life to the precious and the priceless. Will you join me in prayer? God, I know so often when we look at ourselves, we see a mess. I pray that you would allow us to see through your eyes, to see those masterpieces. I pray that you would um, show us what we can do to care for your other masterpieces, God. And I just lift up this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.